0: we're going to be in the last chapter of ezra this morning last chapter of the book of ezra this morning we're going to be looking at confessions consummation Ezra chapter 10, we'll read verse 12 to 17, we'll not go all the way to verse 44, um, but you can can read the list of the offenders on your own time there and work out the Hebrew pronunciations of the names, but I'm not going to do that this morning, I'm going to stop at verse 17. So, Ezra chapter 10 and verse number 12, then all the congregation answered and said with a loud voice, As thou hast said, so we must do. But the people are many, and it's a time of much rain, and we're not able to stand without. Neither is this a work of one day or two, for we are many that have transgressed in this thing. Let now our rulers of all the congregations stand, and let them all which have taken strange wives in our cities come at appointed times. And with them the elders of every city and the judges thereof until the fierce wrath of our God for this matter has been turned from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Esael, and Jehazariah, the son of Tikvah, were employed about this matter. And Meshulam and Sabbathai the Levite, helped them. And the children of the captivity did so. And Ezra the priest, with certain chief of the fathers, after the house of their fathers, And all of them by their names were separated and sat down in the first day of the tenth month to examine this matter. And they made an end with all the men that had taken strange wives by the first day of the first month. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would put your hand upon us this morning. I pray you would put your hand upon me, that you would use me for your glory and that your word would be indeed spoken, that there would be nothing said that shouldn't be said, and everything that should be said would be said. We ask your blessing upon us. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would move amongst us, soften our hearts, shape our hearts, whatever it may be, prepare us to hear from your word. Your word is sharper than any 2 edged sword. It's a mirror that when we look upon it, if we truly, truly look, we see ourselves firmly for who we are, and also it reveals truly who you are. And we thank you that you are a God of all love and all mercy and all compassion. A God that is willing to save when you don't have to. But that's your desire. You're willing that none would perish, Lord. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the time that we've had in the book of Ezra. As we've gone through and as we've looked. And we pray, Lord, that you would just, as we close the book this morning. That you would help us to see the great lesson that lies within the book of Ezra. And to take that lesson and truly apply it to our lives. We ask all these things in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. (coughs) So I don't know if you remember, um, I know that we've slept since then. But last time when we were dealing with uh, Ezra, the great uh, instruction had gone out from Ezra, if you're right, challenging the people. We're dealing with the remnant, those that had returned to Jerusalem. And had been allowed to go back there um, by the the, the different heathen kings. So we had this heathen uh, Hebrew remnant that had come back to the land. And they come back with Zerubbabel. And they began to build. But then they were hindered. They'd stopped. And then Ezra came and things picked up again. The the word of God had been uh, uh, stirred in the hearts of the people. And the people had responded. And then Ezra, when he makes his journey, he arrives. And when he arrives, it doesn't take him very long to find out that there's an issue, there's a problem, there's sin in the camp of Israel. Even though things looked good, they okay, were back in Jerusalem back in the land there was still an issue there was still a problem the problem was the people hadn't totally consecrated themselves unto God and that problem for Israel all those years ago is a problem today for the church where we live in a church age where many people and many churches haven't fully consecrated themselves unto God we have determined to decide that we can divide God's word and we can pick and choose What we want to apply and what we don't want to apply. What seems uh, more important than other bits. And we pick and choose. It's like pick and mix Christianity. We like this bit. But when God says this and tells us no don't do that. Or don't behave in that way. No we don't like that. I I don't know if any of you have have ever seen the, the Babylon Bee. The satire site. Which is quite funny at times. But they did a little bit of satire where they um, you know encrusted them you know there's a new Bible version every every month isn't it it's like it 's a business when I was away in um, Northern Ireland there was a, what, uh, ICM books i don 't know if you ever ordered from there, but in the, in their uh, kind of warehouse and there's just rows and rows of good theological resources and then I went into the, the Bible section and I was just blown away by the, the merchandise of the gospel because it was just All sorts of Bibles, all sorts of colors, all sorts of, uh, you know, little novelty gimmicks and all this. And just tons and tons and tons of it. And, you know, is some of that profitable? Yes. But is it most of it? Publishing houses just making merchandise of the gospel? I think it is. But this Babylon Bay site, they said, oh, a brand new Bible coming out, the perforated Bible. And they they had it. Do you remember? Perforated sheets. I don't know if the kids even come across this anymore. <laughs> but perforated sheets, where you could just pull it out because there was a little, little, little dotted lines on it, you could pull it out. This is what they were saying. This is a perforated Bible. So if you get the bit that you don't like, you can just rip it out, and throw it away. <laughs> it wasn't real. It was satire. It was satire. <laughs> it was a, but but the application's true. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. We we get to bits that are tough. Bits that are hard. Bits that are difficult. What do we want to do? Rip it up and throw it away. Because it attacks our comfortability. But the word of God is the word of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is God breathed. It is profitable. All of it. From Genesis to Revelation. Is God's revealing of himself. And the progressive plan of redemption. It is profitable. It is all of it is. It's from God. It is good and it is perfect. But if we don't act on it, what are we doing? We're not fully consecrating ourselves to God, to his word, and to his will. We're not doing it. So we get to the people here, and Ezra's find that there's a problem, and then he's encouraged to go and and address the people as someone who's respected, as a leader. And that's what he does. He stands up because he's a good leader. A good leader, if you remember, is somebody that knows the way, goes the way, shows the way. And that's what Ezra did, he stood up and he said to the people, you've taken strange waves, you've allowed this practice that God has said don't do it because it will ruin you. It will bring you down. They've just come out of the captivity. What was the captivity designed to do? It was a judgment upon the people to get the world out of the people to help them see that when they give themselves to false gods, they moved away from the true God and they dishonoured Him and they fell further and further into immorality and into sin. And that's the pathway. When we turn from the true God, we will fall further and further into sinful practices. And sinful ways. We can see that as individuals. We can see that as a corporate body, as the church. We can see that in our country as we turn our face away from God and things we say are getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Why are they getting worse and worse in this country? Because we have shunned God. We have shunned his practices. We have shunned his word from the church all the way out to the world. We have ignored him and his warnings as to what will happen when we turn away from the true God. We have taken strange wives in the church. God says, get them out of there. Get rid of them. And I said this a couple of weeks ago. Any man that are just having a hard time with your wife, this is not saying, get rid of her because she's acting oddly. It's not that at all. It's dealing with this influence that's coming in from the world amongst God's people. These were privileged people. These were people that were given the word of God and they were to act accordingly. According to the privilege and the revelation they've been given. With great privilege comes great responsibility. The more you know, the more you're accountable to And God is holding them to a higher standard. Just like he holds us to a higher standard. And we are to walk in his will and his word. And that's what Ezra is simply calling the people to do. So Ezra stirred up by the people. Verse 11 there gives this call. He says, now therefore make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers. To do his pleasure and separate yourselves from the people of the land and from your strange wives. So confession's calling had been acknowledged. But now it had to be consummated. It had to be actioned. Words are easy. Yeah, this is wrong God. I know I shouldn't be doing that. That's easy, easy peasy. It gets hard when we need to action those things. When we have to look upon the sin that we love and say away with you and cut it out of our lives when we get radical with it and that's what the word of God calls us to do, to get radical. That's what Jesus is teaching us. If you have one thing that offends you, cut it out. Be radical. That's what radical means. Cut right at the root. Don't let it grow again. Don't tolerate it. Don't give it a little position. Don't stick it away in the, in the far reaches of your mind somewhere. Don't hide it away in a closet because it will appear again. Deal with it radically. And that's what the calling is. It's simply what James tells us to do in the New Testament. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. And notice that last phrase, deceiving your own selves. You're the one that's living in deceit if you think you can hear the word and ignore it and there are no consequences, no ramifications for that in your life. A hearer but not a doer. You're the one that's being full. Who's fooling you? The flesh is fooling you. If you're born again this morning, it's the old man that's fooling you. If you're not born again, it's the devil, the world, that's fooling you this morning, thinking that you can hear God's word and not do anything about it, and that's going to be okay. You can make it your own way. That's the world's message, which has been spun and weaved and indoctrinated into every single one of us. I come first. Survival of the fittest. Every man for himself. That's anathema to the principles of the teaching of the word of God. Especially in the house of God. James calls us to be doers, not just hearers. But how many don't follow through? How many hear and say, yeah, I'm going to change this. You know, today's going to be the day. I'm going to, I'm going to get things right. I'm going to cut this out of my life. But yet go on to do it. The adulterer that keeps on uh, falling into these adulterous relationships. The gambler that can't help giving his money away. But yet wakes up every morning and says, this is it. I'm not doing this again. I am done with this. Five hours later, they're back in the bookings. The drunk that keeps sneaking the sneaky drink. The druggie that can't let go of his drugs. The gossip that keeps gossiping. The coveter that keeps coveting. Whatever it may be, we are good at hearing, but we're not good at doing We're not good at it. We could go on and on, and maybe that's you this morning, and I look at my own life, and I examine it, and I need to be a better doer. We need to be better doers. We're good at hearing. We come here every Sunday and we hear from the word of God. But what do we do? What do we do? Confession should have its consummation. That means that there's action required. Ezra laid the path in verse 11. Then the people respond Ezra 10, verse 12. Then all the congregation answered and said with a loud voice, As thou hast said, so, look at that word there, will we do? Must. Must. That implies to me they understand the seriousness of it. And that word must means that they, they understand they need to do this to turn away the wrath of God. Now I can think of an amazing New Testament print testament principle in this Acts 4.12 neither is there salvation in any other for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we will be saved could be saved, must Why is this word must use? Because it's the simple truth. That if you're not under the blood, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior, then you are sitting in position to receive the wrath of God that Jesus in his goodness and his grace and obedience to the father took for you so that you don't have to. We must be saved. Same with the people of Ezra's time. They understood where they were. They understood the seriousness of their situation. And they knew that they had to do it. As thou hast said, we must do. This is in parallel with uh, Mount Sinai when the law is given and and Israel enters into this covenant, this covenant of law, the Mosaic covenant. As I've said, that's really a wedding marriage between Israel as the wife of Jehovah and Jehovah. And their marriage vows at that covenant. And God says, if you will, I will. And all the people, people responded, we will. This is more so, we must. This is the understanding. We must do this or God is going to deal with us and he's going to deal justly and he's going to deal rightly. So the ways have been set in motion for for confession's consummation. But the, the seriousness and the scale of it requires careful, methodical, strategic planning through this. So here's the first thing that we want to look at from the body of our text. We want to look at the structure of the plan. The call has been made. The response is given. Now how are we going to go about this? How are we going to do this? Verse 13 and 14. Ezra 10. The structure of the plan. Word of God says this. But the people are many. And it's a time of much rain. And we're not able to stand without. Neither is this a work of one day or two. For we are many that have transgressed this thing. Let now our rulers of all the congregations stand and let all them which have taken strange wives in our cities come at appointed times with them the elders of every city and the judges thereof until the fierce wrath of our God for this matter be turned from us. So three reasons are given by the people, by the leaders of the people as to why they cannot do this straight away. Now, number one reason. There's so many of us so many. I can't just do it all night. There's a great throng of people. Second reason, it's raining. <laughs> the weather's bad. And then, as I've said, the thirdly, then the scale of the actual practicalities. Remember, they were gathering the people that come and they could then organise to send the strange wives and their children away. So there was a lot of practicalities in this. So these are the reasons that are brought up. There's so many of us, it's absolutely pouring, and this is an administrative headache. We just can't do this right here, right now. Now, for some of us, when we deal with confessions, consummation, when we deal with the fact that, yes, we understand what's wrong, yes, we understand that we need to change something, we are very good at coming up with excuses to say I can't do that today, but I will do it tomorrow. Now, this, this used to be my mentality, and this is my method. And this is, this is the whole process of, you get something in your head, that's imagination about what you're going to do and why you're going to do it. And then you think about it enough, and then you, you get the justification. I'm right in doing what I'm doing, and that gets the application. You do it, and then usually it ends in disaster. But it's a cycle. It goes round and round and round. You end up in participation. But this is what I used to do in my early days as a Christian because, you know, I was, I was for those of you who haven't heard my testimony, it's on the uh, Facebook page. If you want, we're going to get a DVD copy of it. I know there's some of you aren't able to access that, they want to see it, we'll put it on. It's my next testimony. But the Lord saved me out of a life of iniquity, a life of crime. I was involved in high level criminality in Northern Ireland, and many of you know this, involved in Loyalist paramilitaries. And, you know, drink, drugs, and destruction was my lifestyle to, to the max. And then I got saved. Praise God. 2007. He saved me. And he started to shape me and change me and mold me. And there were things that fell away, straight away. I was talking with a brother this week and sharing that one of the first things that started the goal was, was my, my, my language, my filthy language. And we were sharing it because in Northern Ireland... It was one of the easiest things to go because every word that was said by somebody in Northern Ireland that's not said is a swear word. That's that's our vocabulary. That's how how we communicate with each other. It's not like you're angry. It's not like you've had something happen to you that, that has, has propelled your rage and you start to swear. You can have a normal conversation about what you had for breakfast and there'll be swear words in there. That's just, just just the language. So that started to drop away. Other stuff started to drop away. But there was stuff that was stubborn. There was sin that was stubborn, that wouldn't go straight away. And, and and took time that God had to work on me. And and what I used to do in my own mind when I was still participating in that sin, because guess what? When you're saved, you don't become immediately perfect. You just recognize that there's sin in your life, and you allow God, as you grow in Him, to change you and mold you and shape you. But that's a process. For some, they get it quicker than others, and God really blesses as they walk and surrender to Him. For people like me, we had to do a little bit of this. And what I used to do in my own imagination was say, Do you know what? One more night, Lord. One more night. I know what's wrong. Confession was calling. But the consummation, that'll be tomorrow. Just give me one more night. I'll go out, have my fill. And tomorrow morning I am done, Lord, and I'll never go back to that again. Go out, enjoy the pleasures of the world, wake up the next morning full of conviction. Broken. Three, four weeks later, same thing again. Right, Lord, this is it now. This is it, and you know that's the extreme. But I've done the same thing when with diet. Who's done that when you're trying to lose a bit of weight? The diet starts weighing tomorrow, tonight. I'm calorific. I'm going for it, right? If I'm gonna, if I'm gonna to sacrifice tomorrow, tonight, I'm gonna to fill myself with calories galore. Full sugar coke. Here I come. What happens? Go a few days, and you're back riding in the cycle. We've got to get radical we got to mean what we say and say what we mean and these people said you know there's so much sin here there's so much to deal with that we've got to take time to do it they weren't making an excuse like we do That's flimsy and full of nothing There's a serious understanding that this is a big thing. Remember, this is not just an individual level, although that's part of it. This is national repentance. This is corporate repentance. This is like all of us standing up this morning saying, Pastor, I am a sinner. I've been caught up in my sin, and we need to talk about this. We need to go through it. We need to pray it through with the Lord, and we need to set an action plan in place to help me in my walk. If you all stood up and said that this morning, we'd have to book slots. One person stood up and did it, we can do it. Two person, Yes. Three? Maybe. But if all of us stood up, and we all want to do this at an individual case-by-case basis, it's going to take time. And that's what's going on. So I don't doubt the genuineness of the people at all. And actually, in verse 13 of Ezra 10, if you, if you read there, the word transgress. it says, Neither this is a work of one day or two, for you are many that have transgressed in this thing. That word transgressed there is, is in the Hebrew, Pasha, and it's only translated by the uh, From that word once in the book of Ezra. There are other words that can translate. Depending on the depth of meaning. When you're talking about transgression. But here Ezra uses this Hebrew term. Which refers to a criminal aspect. An active act of rebellion. Or disobedience. And he uses that word only once. In the entire book. And it's to record the words of the people. Which says to me, the people knew the depth of their sin. They knew that they had stepped over a line. They knew how serious this was. And they were genuine. So the plan was put in place. To do this right. And to do it properly. To not mess about. And that's different from coming up with excuses. To avoid the truth of truly actioning whatever God's calling you to action. There's a difference. These people are doing it right. So that's the structure of the plan. But then it leads on in verse 15 to the stubbornness of the protesters. And verse 15 says, Only Jonathan the son of Esau and Jezreel the son of Tikva were employed about this matter. Now, first things first, if you're reading from a King James Version this morning, that word employ. Employed there as a false friend. What's a false friend? A false friend is, is a word that had different meanings and could have different meanings at the time the translation was wrote, writ, wrote, 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 wrote. Who cares? <laughs> could have had different meanings at that time and not necessarily now we don't maybe understand it the same way. So it wasn't wrong when it was translated but it's a false friend to us today. It doesn't help us in understanding the text because if I say to you the word employed you're going to think about employment, aren't you? So when you're reading this, and I've just said that they're organizing the structure of this plan to go about and, and do this great administrative effort, and then you read there in verse 15 that only Jonathan the son of Essael, Jezreel the son of Tikphite, were employed about this matter, the tendency then is for you to think that they were involved in the administration in dealing with the people that came to put away their strange wives. But the word when it was written could also be understood as one who stood their ground it can be translated or paraphrased to say to hold one's position and the new king james helpfully translates it as as opposed and that's what these people did they didn't get involved in helping they were opposed to what was going on they were those that would not budge on their Position. The same word is translated in 1 Chronicles 21 1, as stood up. So Satan stood up against Israel. So you know you can get this uh, idea of the opposition. So these folks were opposed to what God was doing and what the people, will of the people uh, was in this matter. And there will always be those that will ignore what God is saying to them no matter how God says it, no matter who he says it through, no matter what he brings. Some people will just ignore the word of God. And these people, in verse 15, were those people. Interestingly enough, one of the folks there is Meshulam. And his name appears again, if you look at verse 29 there. So from verse 18 on, this is the list of the people that had taken strange wives. And surprise, surprise, who do we find in verse uh, 29? And of the sons of Bani, Meshulam. Who's standing at one of the ones that's opposed in verse 15? Meshulam. Why is he opposed, do you think? Because he's one of the offenders. And this is going to hurt him and he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to do it. Oswald Chambers says this, and I've been thinking about this quote, and it's probably one of the greatest quotes I've ever written, written, (laughs) read on the will of God. He said this, God's will is hard only when it comes up against our stubbornness. Then it is as cruel as a plowshare and as devastating as an earthquake. God's will is hard only when it comes up against our stubbornness. When we're not surrendered to him, when we're not trusting in him as sovereign. Do you know what that means to say God is sovereign? He is above all, over all, beyond all, in control of all. There is no greater or safer place to be than in the will of God. And when we live the mentality of the truth, when we apply the theology, the theology is God is sovereign. The application of that is living that out, trusting him in all things. That he has my today, he has my tomorrow, and he has my future. That he is the provider, the sustainer, the keeper of life. The debate that I have in my heart this morning is given by a gift of grace of God. At any moment, he could stop that. He holds you in his hand. That's the sovereign God. He's over governments. He's over politicians. He's over circumstances. He's over hardship. He's over pain. He's over whatever you face in this world. That's the sovereignty of God. And if we apply that, we will walk in the will of God with gladness. Wherever he takes us, whatever he has for us, we will go. Because God's sovereign. But you want to resist that? You want to stand against that and say, oh, my way's better, my way's better? Then God's will is going to be hard for you it's going to come into your life and it's going to tear it apart in the best way possible. But if our hearts are just God's sovereign, whatever, it's a different place to be. But there are always those that will oppose. There are always those that allow their stubbornness to cloud their judgment and they will face their consequences. That's up to them. God doesn't strong arm anybody. He gives us free will and choice. And that blows my mind. Because he doesn't have to. He allows that. He allows it. I wonder this morning, is there any Mishulams amongst us? God's calling you, drawing you, whatever it may be, but you're holding on to the hardness of your heart. There's always going to be those that oppose. But for all those that opposed, there were the majority that went willingly to do what God wanted them to do, which leads us to the separation of the people. Verse 16, Ezra 10. And the children of the captivity did so, and answered the priests with certain chiefs of the fathers, after the house of the fathers, and all of them by their names, were separated and sat down in the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. And they made an end with all the men that had taken strange wives by the first day of the first month. So the work must begin. And here we have the separation of the people. And I want you to notice that in verse 16 there, Ezra is introduced as Ezra the priest. Not Ezra the scribe. Not Ezra the leader. But Ezra the priest. And he's introduced here as Ezra the priest. As he is about to head up the process of dealing with those that have sinned grievously against God and to help them through. And I just love that because that whole Ezra the priest, it brings with it authority, but yet there's a compassion to it. You know, there's a great graven in the nation here. Because it's not just, right, we've acknowledged the sin, oh my goodness. We didn't recognize that taking strange wives was against what God wanted for us. Now we've recognized, hallelujah, see you later, wifey, see you later, children. Off you go, now, it's brilliant. It's deep mourning. Families are being separated. This is not a, a, a thing to be taken lightly. But it's Ezra the priest He comes in and does the work. And I can't think... Of a greater reference when it comes to the dealing of sin than our great high priest. He has authority yet compassion. That is willing to open the ear to us. That wants us to come on to him. To ask for confession for our sin. Forgiveness for our sin. Whatever it may be. Believer or non-believer. The high priest is there. The Lord Jesus Christ. So Ezra the priest, he's joined by the heads of the houses of the families. Together they go about the work. So they started on the first day of the 10th month. First day of the 10th month is uh, Tevet. And so that's, you can see it there. Just to the left, uh, 9 o'clock there. That's roughly January, December. So that's why they're complaining about the rain. It's not, you know, it doesn't rain often in Israel. But... uh, Around that time it's not very nice. If you're going on an Israel trip, don't go January, December, January. But that's Tevot and actually historically when i was looking into this this month so the jews know that the lord has given them the sun the moon and etc for signs for seasons and they have their face etc so they're they're very tied into this and they look at the months and there's always something that they're remembering or reflecting upon and it was interesting to me when i looked at this that tevet as a month is usually a, a month of mourning and what they, what they remember, actually, not back to Ezra, but they do remember uh, further back than that when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. He came in from Babylon, 587 BC, destroyed Solomon's temple. So the month of Tevit is when they re- remember what happened there. Now, the reason that Nebuchadnezzar was allowed by God to advance to do that was simply because the sovereign God said, You have rebelled, my people. I have warned you. Here's your judgment. Nebuchadnezzar was allowed by God to do what he did because God's sovereign so the people remember but really they're remembering when they think about the destruction of the temple they're really remembering that they were responsible for it they were responsible and it says in Ezra that they finished on the first day of the first month so what's the first day of the first month that's Nisan March, April Passover, what do they remember at Passover? They remember deliverance. What did God do for them? He delivered them out of Egypt. The world sent them to the promised land. Now, again, they could have walked straight into that. But the rebellion cost them once again. The point I'm making here, and this marks the beginning of spring, New creation, new start, whatever you want to call it. So you have these two months here that they begin this work, this great work of, of going through the people, of recognizing their sin, and they finish it then on the first day of the first month. And I don't think those months are coincidental. I think God has sovereignly superintended that. To show us something that sin being dealt with is important. But when we deal with it. There is a new walk. A new way. A new start. God doesn't want us left in the month of Tevet. He wants us to walk in this sun, He wants us to walk in the promised land that he has called us to. And to do that we must deal with Sin. We must get about separating ourselves from it. And that's what goes on in the book of Ezra chapter 10. The people go about the work and it's three months the work takes. Three months. You do your calculations when you read from verse 18 to verse 44. Down they come up with 113 guilty men in this. You work that out, you put the Sabbath days in over three months. What it tells you is roughly, on average, each case took two-thirds of a working day. What does that tell us? That there was justice and fairness and compassion in this. That everyone was able to come and give their case before Ezra and the leadership. It wasn't just done in a, in, a, in, a, you know, in a destructive and aggressive manner. Yes, it was radical in what they were dealing with. But it was dealt with well and it was dealt with properly. Sometimes we get the, the picture of Israel... Because they were a tribal nation and we compare them to some of the other tribal nations that they are uh, just barbaric in in, in the things that they do. But in their justice, when they handed it out, they were very ordered and measured. Even stoning, the practice of stoning was done in a very measured way. That they were taken to a, a height that had to be over a certain height. And then they were pushed off the height. They fell and the fall if it didn't kill them, then somebody would come along and they would drop a great boulder on top of them. That was the official practice of stoning. That's why they took Jesus on the high cliff to kill him. They were trying to stone him under Judaistic law. So again, you know, they're not a wild people. They're acting according to God's law and God is a God of order and they act compassionately and go about the business. And confessions call in is consummated with the separation of the people. All done in three months. And that's where we leave the people of Israel all those years ago. They have got themselves in a good place. How have they got themselves in a good place? They have heard the word of God, they've listened to the word of God, and they have responded to the word of God. God. And when you look at the book of Ezra, you'll see that the people did well when they were about God's work, God's way. That's when they did well. When they didn't do well is when they fell away from what God had called them to So the challenge for us, remember the theme of Ezra's return, rebuild, revive. They were only able to revive and rebuild when they got serious about God's word. They were only uh, able to do that when they became doers of the word, not just hearers only. So the challenge for us today as we finish the book of Ezra, we bring this to us uh, this morning, is that what are we going to do about what we hear? This is a quote from Ronald Blue. You'll find this in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. And he says this. He says, receptivity to the word, responsiveness to the word, and resignation to the word are essential to spiritual growth. One must accept God's word, act on it, and abide by it. That's it. That's Christian living. You want to grow in your faith. You want to get mature in your faith. This is the pathway. Warren Wearsby said that in his, in his all of years of ministry, that he was convinced that the greatest issue within the church and within believers, you know, the body of Christ, was the immaturity of believers. Babies in the faith. Another commentator said those that grew up or grow old don't always grow up. It's the same in the world as it is in the church. What happens? We hear, we hear, we hear. We don't do. We don't do. We don't grow. God will never reveal more to you unless you act upon what he has given you. That's the process. Oh, I want to know more about God. I'm going to study more. I'm going to look at the commentaries more. If you're not applying that theology, it is dead. It is not profitable to you because you're not taking what God has revealed to you and those basic steps of obedience and trust and you're not walking in them. The Christian walk is a walk of hearing God and obeying God. Hearing God and obeying God. Hearing God and obeying God. If you just hear God, hear God, hear God, hear God, hear God, but don't obey, what are you doing? Around circles, you're treading water. You're hearers and not doers. And we started with James, didn't we? We're going to end with James. Turn with me in your Bibles to... James chapter one verse twenty three. We read this if you be hear any be hearers of the word, not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. And whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continue therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This man shall be blessed in his deed. So here James, who really writes this as a preacher, the the letter of James is really preached more than it is a written form. And he really goes for it. And he uses a lot of illustrations. An illustration of the principle that he's teaching is a mirror. And the word of God is likened to a mirror. And a mirror, what's a mirror do? If we look at it, we see ourselves. That's all we can see. When we look in a mirror, we stand in front of it, we see a reflection. There's no filters. There's no Instagram filters. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about when I say filters. No none of that. Can't alter the image. It is what it is. You see what you are. That's what a mirror does. And it helps us see if there's something not right. Helps us see if our hair is not done right. Helps us see if we're wearing something that's not matching and we look at it and we're worried about that sort of stuff. We'll say, No, I'm going to go and change that. I'm going to make it, something happen to fix that. That's what a mirror does. And this is what James is saying that the mirror of God's Word shows us self, shows us who we are, and really calls us to change those things. And James, in this little passage, he lists three mistakes that people make. And here's the three mistakes that people make. This is the application of this stuff. Number one. When people look in the mirror of God's word, they fail to correct what they see wrong. They look, they see, but they decide not to action upon it. They're hearers, but not doers. Number two. They merely glance at it. James says he beholdeth himself and goeth his way. What does that mean? We just take a quick look and off we go and then we don't really see what the issues are what the problems are. How many of you have done this in the morning in a rush? Quick look in the mirror only to get out during the day and find you've still got your rulers on. No? Anybody use rulers? <laughs> Steve, rollers? <laughs> <laughs> but you don't, you don't take the time. To examine and see. It's the second problem. Thirdly, James says, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. They forget or they choose not to remember what and who they've seen. They stop at the mirror, they look, they see, they walk away, forget. James makes it clear in verse 25 that the only prophet comes when we look, we see, and we action what God is showing us. So let me ask this question as we finish. Where are you this morning when it comes to the mirror of God's Word? We've gone through the book of Ezra, we've gone through first by first pretty much through the whole book we have held the word of God the mirror of God's word up week after week after week what have you seen of yourself are you number one you've seen but you're choosing not to do anything about it are you number two that you just come in and don't really pay attention and just glance and go are you number three you're making a willful decision Just forget about that It's Monday. Yesterday was Sunday. This is Monday. Where are you? What are you going to do to what God is showing us through his word? God has something to say about every one of our lives. From the pastor to the pew, each and every one of us can profit from what God is telling us through his word. But we've got to look, and when we see, we've got to do, and then God will work. Do not expect God to do anything in your life if you are not doing anything in your life with God. It's your choice. Ezra has shown us and told us that if the people of God are going to do well in God's work, we have to surrender We have to submit, and we have to be the people God has called us to be. Return, rebuild, revive. What are we to be, church? Are we going to be hearers? Are we going to be hearers and doers? And be pleasing to what God has called us to. Let's pray.